Pray with me, please, again. Father, I ask for Your mercy, Your grace of the presence of the Holy Spirit to be upon me as a teacher, as a proclaimer, May You give us ears to hear as we try to see into the mystery of Your glorious eternal wisdom, Your insurpassable, confounding ways. May You give us ears to hear and give my mouth to speak clearly, to represent accurately what You have revealed in holy text to the glory of Your Son Jesus and to our ultimate good. I pray. Amen. We're in week 30. We're coming to a close. Next week, I believe, will be the close where I'll try to take 30 weeks of sermons about redemptive history or the journey through biblical history and say them all again. Pray for me in one sermon. That will be next week. But in this journey through biblical history, as we have now come to the New Testament, the New Testament reveals three new mysteries. It uses the word mystery, and by mystery it means things that were hidden. They weren't seen. They weren't expected. And then, through the apostles, they are revealed. The first mystery that we have seen over the previous four sermons is the mystery of the kingdom of God coming now. It's present, but it's still not yet. still future. We have seen the mystery that that means wheat, sons of the kingdom, and weeds will go on existing during this age. That was a mystery. It was unexpected. Mystery number two that the New Testament reveals, and you've got to feel this. Most of us are, well, our one Jew left for the moment. Most of us Gentiles, you have to feel this now, what was going on in the first century, and that is, it was mysterious. It wasn't expected that non-Jews, Gentiles, could come into the kingdom, could be saved by Christ without converting first to Judaism. The apostles still didn't get it when Jesus ascended. It took them a while. It took God to knock Peter upside the head with a vision and say, go to the Gentile's house and preach. No, I'm a Jew. I don't do that. Well, God finally made him do it. Jesus said this in Matthew 8, verses 11 to 12, I tell you, speaking to His fellow Jews, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
In Matthew 21, verses 42 to 43, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scripture the stone, which is the Christ, the Messiah, that the builders, the Jews, rejected has become the cornerstone? Was this This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, my fellow Jews, and given to a people producing its fruits. Then, in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul states this mystery clearly, starting with verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you Gentiles, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. You assume it. There's been 2,000 years of history of the church being predominantly Gentile. Very, very few. Small minority of Jews. But the mystery is that All people, Jews, and everybody else, that's all people, are one body in Christ. They have one access and only one to the Father, which is Jesus Christ. They are fellow heirs, members of the same body. That's mystery number two. Now mystery number three that the New Testament reveals, and it's directly connected to this one with the Gentiles, are grafted in, and that's why I'm going to spend the rest of this sermon on the third mystery. The third mystery revealed by God through the Apostle Paul specifically is the mystery of the hardening of the hearts of the Jews. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. Paul says, Lest, Gentile, you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Here it is. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. This means, Paul's saying, God has revealed what's going on. Not just in the past. He is doing redemptive history. 
And part of His mysterious plan is that since the Gospel, God is hardening the hearts of the vast majority of Israel, the Jews, so that they won't accept the Christ until that day when they all will who are living. And they will all be saved. I'm speaking very slowly. This is an intense text. Let's take a bird's eye view that brings us here and what we've seen. The Old Testament prophets, as we have seen, they prophesied very clearly that when the Son of David comes, when the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, He is going to deliver the Jews. It's my term for Israel this morning. He's going to do it, not just physically. He's going to bring conversion to God. The hearts will be changed. The prophets are clear on that. Then we saw the Christ, the Son of David, the King, comes in a way they didn't expect. He came the first time as the suffering servant to die for sin. And then after His resurrection, before His ascension, He commissions His disciples to go and proclaim that message, that Gospel to the whole world. And when we open up the book of Acts, we see this pattern unfolding. First in Jerusalem. Yes, the early church in Jerusalem are all Jews. But still, a small minority minority of the Jews are believing. Until finally, the rejection of the King, of Christ, of the Gospel, by the Jews, their fellow Jews in Jerusalem, causes persecution. And they kick these Christian Jews out. And we see then it overflows to the non-Jew Samaritan and then eventually to the Gentile and then eventually to the Gentile mission. And then we see in the Apostle Paul's ministry, every city and town he would go to, he goes to the synagogue first and he preaches the Gospel to the Jews and some might believe, but the vast majority reject it. And he makes wild statements like, that's it, thank you, I'm shaking the dust off my feet, I'm now turning to the Gentiles. And you see this pattern again and again that the Apostle Paul knows that the vast majority, 90-95% of Jews are rejecting the Gospel. very small minority are believing. But of the Gentiles, they're flowing in. And our text this morning makes it clear that Israel, the Jews, will remain in rebellion against the Gospel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. If you are there in Romans 11 where we've been, if you just glance at verse 7 for a moment, Paul says, what then? Israel failed, rejecting the Christ, the Savior, they failed to obtain what they were seeking, righteousness. They didn't obtain it. It's only obtained through Jesus Christ. They did. But watch. The elect obtained it. That means there are some Jews like Paul, like Peter, and numbers of others who have obtained it, been born again, saw the light of the Gospel, accepted the Christ. They've obtained it. Who? Those who were chosen, the remnant out of Israel, but the rest were hardened. It's a 
passive voice verb, not they hardened themselves, but some other agency hardened them. Now, see, the Apostle Paul knows this. He sees this. And I want, we must hear his heart in response to knowing this truth about God. Flip back to Romans 9. He begins Romans 9, starting with verse 1, this way. You've got to hear the anguish he feels. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart concerning the vast majority of his fellow Jews who are lost in not turning to Christ. Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, for the rest of the sermon, do not lose that text in your life. Because what you will hear about the profundity of who God is, oh, let Him tell you who He is. It evidently should never cause you to not feel grief or pain over the lostness of souls or cancer or anything else that is naturally unwanted. Why did I say that? Paul says, I have unceasing grief. But when he says it, he knows what he's going to write in Romans 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening of the heart has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. He knows God knows what He's doing. And yet, he still feels the pain and the grief over individual souls that he keeps running into in meeting. So, I'm going to say it this way because I want you to hold this. I have had the experience in my life where I'm sitting around a table or something and someone just, some kind of tragic event or something happened that you don't want and someone would make a comment to me like, oh, well, God's sovereign. That's not what you should, the way you should respond. You might say those exact words, but not with that attitude. If you do, we might not be getting it. There's a way to say, I know He is. And I'm crying still. It's not flippant. And, I, and in my tears, and I know He is. And it goes back and forth. You see, in Romans chapter 9 to 11, Paul starts off with what we just saw. Anguish. And at the end of this whole big, large section in the book of Romans, 9 to 11, he is going to end with glorious praise and somehow they can exist together when he will say, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor or who has given Him a gift that God must pay us back? No one. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever.
So as God works on our hearts, and He does this over a lifetime, somehow we want the truth of Scripture to come and allow us within our hearts and in our minds to have a category that says, I can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing in God's sovereign plan. And so, the point this morning is, in this redemptive history, is that in the wisdom of God, as we have seen for the last 30 weeks, God allows evil to exist. Man fell, and He didn't wipe him out. He let him go, and let him go, and let him go, until evil filled the earth. Then in His wisdom, He slaughtered him. And then, evil's still here, sin is still here, mankind is still sinful, and He lets them go, and lets them go, until the Tower of Babel. It wasn't He woke up one day and said, ooh, I better deal with it. He is very purposeful, and then He brought judgment and scattered them. And then, one day in history, He chose a man. Based upon nothing about that man. His name was Abram and made a covenant with him, and with his son Isaac, and with his son Jacob, and with Jacob's twelve sons. And then, he pulls back and lets them go off into slavery, and is very patient for 400 years. And then, it's time he calls a man, Moses, to deliver his people. And he gives them the law, and they are a people. They are Israel. And he gives them the land, and he still doesn't send Jesus. Because it's not time. He lets another 1,200 years of Israeli history to unfold because he is purposely writing a lesson book of how not to rebel and some remnant examples of how to trust God. And then, Paul says, in the fullness of time, that's God's time, That's God's purpose. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. He has His purposes, sovereign purposes for everything that is. And what we see this morning is that since Christ, this hardening of the heart of the vast majority of Jews is along the same pattern that God has been doing throughout human history. What we're going to see in these three chapters, Romans 9 to 11, which are a cohesive thought, is that Paul breaks up in this overview of redemptive history into three segments of what God's doing. The first segment we'll see that he's going to argue is this. It is not true, never has been true, that God promised to save eternally every individual Jew. Second segment. Since Christ, God is hardening the hearts of the Jews for the purpose of saving Gentiles. Third segment. There will come a day because of His mercy poured out on the Gentiles. Thus, 
God will show that mercy to the Jews and save them all. That's what he argues in these three chapters. And so as we open up chapter 9 right now, here's the big question first. Why, Paul? Why is this even fitting in the book of Romans? Simple answer. Chapters 1 to 8. And if you know Romans, many of you do, and if you don't, oh, read it over and over and over. Glorious, glorious unfolding of God's wisdom and purposes and the Gospel of Jesus Christ that all are damned and condemned justly, yet God's mercy through Christ provides justification by faith alone. And you see these glorious promises like Paul says in Romans 8. We can know that all things work together if you're a Christian. All things work together for your good. To, that is, to those who love Christ and are called. That is a magnificent, stunning promise. He goes on to say, who can bring a charge against God's elect? He says, nothing that exists. Death and life and marriages and cancer and pain and demons could ever separate any Christian from being saved from the love of God. Can't do it. God, and here's the, here's, here's the words, Paul comes to the culmination, 1 to 8. He promised. The reason, therefore, the next three chapters come, because Paul was very much more practical than many of us evangelicals today. It is really practical. He is going to undergird the reality that if you're a believer, you can trust God's promises. He will not ever renege on them to you. But why does He do this then? Simple. The Romans, vastly Gentiles, some of the Jews had this question. Can we really trust Him? You've given us promises, Paul. But God promised the Jews He's going to send the Messiah and convert them and save them. And the vast majority are rejecting the Gospel and are being eternally lost. Can we really trust God's Word to us not to fail? That's the question Paul is now dealing with as he opens up and we open up chapter 9. And so the first answer to that is Paul is going to say God's Word has not failed to them. And his main reason is this first segment. Because it's not true that God has committed Himself to save every physical, naturally born Jewish person. Read with me verses 4-5 to of chapter 9. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, it says fellow Jews, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God 
over all, blessed forever. Amen. But then, Paul goes on to make it clear, none of God's promises have failed. Or will. Let's just read it. Start with verse 6, Romans 9. The next verse. But, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. It's his main point. It's his main point all the way up into chapters 10 and through 11. The Word of God has not failed. Read on. See the word for? It means here's the reason. Here's the because. Here's, here's my ground for that statement, Paul says. God's Word has not failed. Why? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. Okay? Where do you get that, Paul? Now, he goes to Genesis and he says, here's a text. Quote, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, Ishmael, he was a son of Abraham, but he's not chosen. And he doesn't receive the promise. That's Paul's point here. Look at verse 8 now. What this means is this that it is not the children of the flesh, like Ishmael, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, quote, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That's God's promise. And thus, Ishmael's rejection And being one of those to receive the promise of Abraham, his rejection in favor of Isaac teaches a lesson, Paul says, and it teaches a lesson to every generation of human history. And that is this. To be a child of God, to be a child of the promise, does not depend on anything inherent within that person. It doesn't depend on any distinctive that any human being has. I'm a child of Abraham, Ishmael would say. It doesn't matter. And the reason Isaac got the promise was not because he was merely born the child of Abraham. It was because God said, that's the one I'm going to put the promise on. That's Paul's point with the first one. It does not depend upon anything within a person for them to receive the promise. It depends only on God's sovereign grace. Let's pick up with the next verse. He gives the next biblical example to support his position. Verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good 
or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of His call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, Paul's thinking, maybe someone would argue with my first example. Well, Ishmael was not the son of Abraham's wife, Sarah. He was the son of a slave woman, Hagar. So of course we're going to reject him. He didn't have the right distinctives. Yeah, he shuts that door. Slams it shut. Because you don't get more Jewish, if I can be anachronistic and use that term, than Esau and Jacob. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, and now Isaac with his wife, Rebekah. She's pregnant with two boys in her womb at the same time. They have not been able to do anything bad or good. And God chooses one to love and not the other. If the clear reading of these four verses have not hit you with stunning shock, you haven't listened to them clearly yet. They're meant to shock because they mean what Paul said they mean. Was it John the Baptist? Very simple. Get baptized. You need to repent. And don't come to me saying, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able to choose rocks and raise them up. There is no distinctive that any human being could offer to God that I'm a Jew or I'm a non-Jew. I have blonde hair. I have black skin. I have white skin. I'm an Asian. I'm Roman Catholic. I'm... Pentecostal. I'm Baptist. I'm a Muslim. I'm short. I'm tall. I'm good. You have nothing that would cause God on this level that Paul's talking about to say, yes, I must respond with choosing you. Why, Isaac? I mean, Jacob and not Esau. Paul's clear, so that God's purpose in election might continue. And it's not arbitrary. God is, in His infinite wisdom, making it impossible for all eternity for anyone to boast. Not by works but by His sovereign election. Then Paul is going to go on. And he's going to go on because he knows 
the arrogant, prideful, sinful, man-centeredness of us human creatures. He knows exactly how I responded to these texts back in the early 1990s when I had to deal with them honestly for the first time. And any believer who comes to see and ultimately be able to praise with Paul at the end of Romans 11 doesn't come through this smoothly. If they do, they probably have not actually come through the acceptance and the reality of what Paul is actually saying. But Paul knows my response. Paul, if what you have just said is true, then God is not just. Because I don't think it's just for God to choose people to love without them having done something or been something that would cause Him to love them. Therefore, I think it's just. This is not, believe it or not, the main core of the sermon this morning. So I'm just going to read the rest of Paul's response to that accusation against Paul. I'm going to try to read. Who knows? I talk too much sometimes. But starting with verse 14, Paul knows the response. And so he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice? Like you say, Joe. Is there injustice on God's part? No. No. No is the answer. By no means. Now here's his argument. Because he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have mercy. Compassion. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to stop for a second. Okay, you see, what one would expect, you make one proposition, and then you make another that is distinct from it, separate from it, different from it, that say, okay, that makes sense. In other words, okay, my five children, the one who's going to get the special dessert tonight is the one who can run the fastest 40 yards. On your marks, get set, go. The dessert and the running of 40 yards are two separately distinct propositions, things. It makes sense. You do this, then you get this. And Paul is very purposeful in quoting Bible. Quoting God to Moses. Okay, who do you show mercy to? To those who are religious. That, that, would be, that would work, okay. He, one statement and then being religious is another. To those who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and really produce some faith in themselves. To those who fill in the blank. He on purpose doesn't go there. He on purpose takes this text from the books of Moses and says, it's clear, God will have mercy on whom He has mercy. Duh, duh. But that's not what I'm asking, Paul. 
That's the answer. Paul's it's his way of saying there is nothing outside of God that anyone could do or be that would be the cause of him showing mercy. You misunderstand what mercy is. On this level of election that Paul's talking about, he will have mercy. I'll tell you who he has mercy on, Paul says. And God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I choose to have compassion. Now pick up with verse 16. So then, here's Paul's conclusion from that statement. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Okay, I think we're on the right track. I think my interpretation seems to be working. It's on God, that's what it depends, who has mercy. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Stop. Pharaoh, the reason you exist, and the reason I send Moses and Aaron and tell you through them, let my people go. The reason you refuse to do it is because I raised you up to refuse to do it so that I can pour out my plagues and demonstrate my glory and my power. So then, Paul concludes, God has mercy on whomever He wills. And He hardens whomever He wills. You will say to me, Paul, then, you will say to me, then why does He still find fault? According to your theology, Paul, that lets us know that we're on the right track of what He actually means. He expects that response. Because you seem to be saying, Paul, that yes, we all choose, we all have wills, we do have a free will. Everyone truly, by definition of will, you always are choosing, making choices constantly according to your greatest desire. That's the essence of what the will is. Paul would agree with that, but he seems to be saying, God's in another realm behind that and above that. And if that's so, Paul, and ultimately everything is owed to God, then how could he blame Pharaoh? or anybody else. But this doesn't seem to be, in Paul's mind, a humble question. It seems to be what we sinful Christians often do. No. Doesn't fit. Can't be. It's not the God I want to believe in. Because, I say I think that's the attitude because of Paul's response. Let me read it again. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? His answer. But who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use? and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath, 
and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that He may make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. I must leave this section. The point so far now is this though. What Paul has just done here and what he will continue to do for the rest of chapter 9 and throughout chapter 10 in the first few verses of chapter 11, he is arguing for his first main statement. God's promises, His word to Israel has not failed. He never fails to fulfill His promises. That's the first segment then. The second segment, which we see in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, is now Paul unveils this mystery. And that is the purpose, it's a big word there, purpose, goal in mind. There's an aim that God has. The purpose of Israel's rejecting the Messiah throughout the last 2,000 years, at least now, the purpose was so that salvation would come to the rest of the world, the Gentiles. Romans 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they, my fellow Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? I mean, is that God's purpose, just to see them fall? No! Rather, here's the purpose, that through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. See, that means that the purpose of God in the hardening of their hearts so that they stumble. The purpose is not their final abandonment by God. See, the idea here, just read it again, verse 11. I ask, did they stumble? No, they might fall. Answer, no, that's not the purpose. In other words, the stumbling, yes, did lead to lostness and judgment for many generations of Jews. But, Paul's saying, the final lostness and the judgment of the people as a whole was not the end game, not the reason why he did it. There's a further purpose for why He did it. And what is that? Read the rest of verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Concluding statement. God's purpose for Israel's unbelief, for their sin, for the hardness of their heart. God's purpose was so that He would overflow from that rejection to all the rest of the world the gospel of salvation. We pause for a moment. Because you did hear me clearly. I think I said it clearly. And I know that to hear statements speaking of God's 
purpose for sin and for unbelief and for a hardness of heart is really difficult. I just asked it. Pick two other biblical pictures and at least let them wrestle around in your mind as we consider this. First is the Joseph narrative. In the Joseph narrative, we see his brothers and their jealousy get angry at him and sin. They wanted to kill him. One of his brothers gets, says, let's not do that. Let's sell him into slavery to these Egyptians. And they did that. And don't miss it. That was wrong. It was against God's revealed will. It was sin. And we know Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Don't we? Joseph says to his brothers, way down the road now, what you did to me, you meant it for evil. And thus, it was evil that what you did. But, God meant those same happenings for good. Part of the renewing of the mind that Paul will go on to talk about right after these three chapters has to do with letting God create categories in your minds, in your hearts, about who He really is. The other biblical picture is Jesus on the cross. Question. What put Him there? Did the sin of Judas' betrayal put Him there? Did the shenanigans and jealousy and arrogance and unbelief of the Sanhedrin put Him there? Did the false testimonies that night put Him there? Did the weak, mealy-mouthed, milk-toast Pilate put Him there? Did all that sin of human beings put Jesus on the cross? Or did God put Him on the cross? The biblical answer to that question is yes. And you have to make room for that in your minds or you will butcher Scripture. Just one text. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 to 28. The church is together. They're praying and they pray this way. For truly, God, in this city, there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do sin. To do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. So, just keep those in your, in your mind. And now as we come to these three chapters, know God is always doing more than one thing. So much more. Is He hardening the hearts of the Jewish people? Yes. But so much more. He is doing that. Not as an end, 
but as the means to the end to pour out the gospel of mercy and new birth and softening of hearts to untold millions of Gentiles ever since the first century. If you want to see it really clearly, jump down in chapter 11 of Romans to verses 28 to 32. And His purpose is stated again clearly. As regards the Gospel, they, that is my fellow Jews, are enemies of God. For your sake, Gentile. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Gentile, you believe in Christ just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. That's the same point he made in verse 11, isn't it? Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Pick up verse 31. So they too have now been disobedient in order that, that is, for the purpose that by the mercy shown to you, they, in the end, will one day also be shown or receive mercy. For God is up to something. Here it is. God has consigned all people to disobedience. Why? So that He may have mercy upon Jews and Gentiles, all people. So, that's the second segment Paul deals with here. That God is hardening during this age the Jews' hearts as a whole for the purpose of pouring out mercy upon the Gentiles. All the rest of the peoples from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. And now though, the third segment is that Gentile salvation that has been predominant for the last 2,000 years now up to this point. Gentile salvation according to the mystery that was given to Paul will bring salvation to the Jews. To Israel. In other words, God's purpose doesn't end with the salvation of Gentiles through the rejection of the Gospel by the Jews or Israel. Was the purpose of Israel stumbling and rejecting and being lost just for the sake of them being lost? Paul's answer is no! The purpose was for the sake of the salvation of Gentiles. And then he adds one little line at the end of verse 11. Amazingly. So as to make Israel jealous. Purpose upon purpose. The hardening of Israel in order that from that hardening the Gospel goes to all who are non-Israel, the Gentiles. And then the salvation of the Gentiles in order that in the long run it produces within Israel, the Jews, Jealousy. Why? So that 
when God pours out His Spirit sovereignly upon most of the Jews in that day, like He's been doing on many Gentiles, they will claim and embrace their Messiah all the more and become a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And if we think that's, okay, that's it, that's the end of it, Paul, he goes on. He says, in all of this, it's not only that there's this further design in his workings. Verse 12, listen, he goes on to say, now if there, that is the Jews, trespass, rejection of the Gospel, their trespass means riches for the world. Yes? And if their failure to receive Christ means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? God's purpose in the trespass of Israel is that salvation will come to the Gentiles and His purpose for the salvation of the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous so that they will, in that day with the outpouring of the Spirit, in that historical context, wake up to the greatness of Almighty God's Messiah, their Savior, Jesus Christ. The purpose of the salvation of Israel That's what he means here now. That is, their full inclusion is going to mean something then even greater. Look at it, verse 15. For if their rejection, the Gospel, means the reconciliation of the world, that's God's plan, okay, What will their acceptance of the Gospel, their acceptance of Christ, which is going to happen, what will that mean but life from the dead? When God saves all Israel, it's really short. This is what I think He means. Before Christ then comes back and raises from the dead Jew and Gentile alike who have been engrafted into the body of Christ to enjoy Him then forever and ever and ever based upon absolutely crystal clear laid out in history, mercy alone, nothing, absolutely nothing, meaning even your faith have you to boast in that you are. Thank you. Summed up. Paul's preaching the Gospel in the first century. It becomes more and more obvious that the Jews as a whole are just rejecting it like he once did until mercy was poured out upon him who was the remnant. And then, throughout history, jealousy is building up for the potential for the Jews one day to welcome that mercy and thus with even greater appreciation than could be possible without the way God purposed to do it. In other words, when that blindness, if you're a Christian, God's mercy poured out on you individually. He took away the blindness. He opened the eyes of your heart to see the glorious light of the Gospel. And one day He will do that for all those Jews who are existing in that day. And when that happens, they will see they missed 
the great blessings that the Gentiles have been enjoying for all these centuries. And against that historical backdrop, their fervor will be at a peak for Jesus Christ, their Messiah, when the Holy Spirit is sovereignly poured out. That's what we've said. I'm going to close my first closing just by quoting the last part of chapter 11. How Paul, take into your head what has been said. You may need to listen to this tape 45 times. And you may have great questions. Don't be afraid of any to ask of me. But I'm going to start with verse 25 and read to the end with what we just said and listen to how he closes. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, when the fullness comes in, all Israel will be saved. And just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. See, those texts are there. Paul saying to the Roman Christians and to us, He will fulfill every promise. Trust every promise I made in chapter 1 to 8. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be My covenant with them when I take away their sins of natural Israel. As regards the Gospel, yes, right now, they are enemies of God for your sake, the Gentile. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, David and Caleb and Moses and Jacob and Abraham, etc. They are beloved for their sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Gentile, just as you were at one time disobedient, may I say it, for centuries, thousands of years, when God's only working with the Jews predominantly, you Gentiles were hardened. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned every human being, whether Jew or Gentile, all to disobedience for the purpose that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Or who has been His counselor? You ought not do it this way. For who has given to Him in order that God is obligated to pay you back? No one. For from Him and through Him and back to Him are all things 
to Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's how Paul concludes. I conclude this way. Dear professing believer, listen and receive and believe in and be amazed at the God that Paul unfolds to you. Be very wary of creating God in the image you would like. It is one thing to profess and have statements of faith that we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration of Holy Scripture. It's another thing to allow God to cause clear texts like these to bring tears and pain and struggle and frustration and anger, but ultimately, submission. God is sovereign even in the hardening of the hearts of whole people groups. But don't miss it. His aim in even doing so through His unsearchable wisdom, as Paul said, His goal is mercy. No, and I mean no human being None of us in here today deserves to be saved. But God is gathering for Himself a people through faith in Jesus Christ from all the people groups of the world. And one day, His mercy will be poured out upon all the natural Jews of earth. The hardness will be lifted and they will come into their promised inheritance through Jesus Christ. But my plea for us from what we have heard this morning, and it can be applied to every text that you read in Holy Scripture and applied to every nuance of your life, your joyful life, your life that's filled with unexpected tragedy and pain. Every area of life, know this. Even though you can't figure it all out. Even though we're told so much about God and to believe it, and you're still left with some mystery. Even though God's ways of doing redemptive history as we've seen this morning seem kind of awkward to you? Seem kind of roundabout? Why don't you just go preach the gospel and save everybody? Why have the Jews rejected? And so the Gentiles would come to faith and then based upon the Gentiles' faith and mercy shown to them, then bring mercy to them. Why? Even though God does it His way, here's my plea. You and I are not God. 
God knows what kind of history must take place in order for Him to demonstrate the glorious, eternal beauty, richness of His very person in being poured out in mercy against the backdrop of His holy righteousness, wrath, and judgment. And those truths that God reveals in Holy Scripture are meant to deepen our faith. They are meant to cause our trust in Him. And especially when you can do nothing but cry that His promises, that He will cause even that to work together for your good. You know it's true when you know and believe the God who's revealed in Holy Scripture. These shocking, life-shattering I had my life shattered after I was a Christian for 11 years. It shattered over these texts. And you come out, I hope, deeper. But when that happens, it's for the purpose that you'll persevere. That you'll be patient. You'll remain faithful. I want to turn back and just quote one text. Just listen. In Romans 8, before he gets to Romans 9-11, it is this kind of stuff Paul has in mind that he means to set, want to go deep down rock solid in your heart. When everything is good and when everything feels like it's falling apart. For those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Are you one? Then you're supposed to hear this. And those whom He predestined, He also called to faith. And those whom He called to faith, He has justified. And those whom He's justified, they will make. He will glorify them. Absolutely no dropouts. What then shall we say to these things? Paul says this is what we'll say. If the God of promise is for us, who could be against us? No one. No one. Because He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will God the Father not also freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, no one. And that's what he goes on to do. 
Not life as hard as it gets. Not death in your family or of a wife or of a child. Things that are present, things which lay in your future, any other thing that is not God called created shall be able to separate you from Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says you can trust Him. He will never fail on His promises. He never has and never will because, Paul argues, Serge, God is sovereign. He is in control. Unfathomably, unsearchably, and in everything, He is working for the good of every sinful wretch that has been called to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And He will do it. Father, I once again plead for such extraordinary mercy to be poured out right now as we pour out our hearts in song again. But over the days and the weeks and the months to come to cause every hearer of your Apostle Paul from what has been unfolded this morning to embrace You in Your sovereign purposes. Through all the pain and the trials and the questionings and the things that are even scary to contemplate for us, I pray that we'll be able to do what Paul did. To hate pain, to hate trials, to hate suffering, to hate unbelief, to hate it when a loved one seems to have passed from this life to their eternal judgment, to in this life feel it, grieve, and pray for those things in others' lives and ourselves, and at the same time to know not flippantly, Father, but solidly, and hopefully and firmly and soberly and knowing ultimately very joyfully you are sovereign to the glory of your Son Jesus Christ who purchased this great salvation, I pray. Amen.